Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. This week, instead of an interview, Jay and I are doing a special show on the politics and policy of climate change in the aftermath of President Trump's decision to pull the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord. Now, the withdrawal won't take full effect until November 4th, 2020, and, well, my hope, and one that I know is shared by, well, countless people in the United States and around the world, is that the day before that, Americans will elect a new president who's fully committed to the Paris Accord and will be able to, you know, get back and get back in and start taking real steps to try to minimize what may very well be a global catastrophe for future generations. Um... Now, there was a lot of very strong listener reaction to our discussion of the Paris Accord decision, including several listeners who said that after hearing what we had to say, they were unsubscribing from the show. Um, No. Yeah. You know, we always hate to see people go, but given how passionately so many people feel about this issue, we wanted to address some of the critiques that we've received. But before we get to that, We're going to talk about some developments in this area that occurred after President Trump's announcement. Now, the first of these developments is the creation of a movement called We Are Still In. That consists of, as of now, um, 182 cities and counties, nine states comprising 29% of the U.S. population, including California and New York, 283 presidents of colleges and universities, and 1,371 businesses, including giants like Apple, Amazon, Google, IBM, and Target. They announced a commitment to, in their words, remain actively engaged with the international community as part of the global effort to hold warming to well below 2 degrees centigrade and to accelerate the transition to a clean energy economy that will benefit our security, prosperity, and health. Now, that's a lot of economic firepower there. And and to me, it's a small positive sign in the wake of President Trump's efforts to essentially, well, dismantle the environmental progress made during the Obama years. Uh, Jay, what do you think? You know, I, to, to me, you know, first of all, look, if, if uh, various cities, counties, uh, companies want to uh, voluntarily cut their carbon emissions. Well, super. Um, you're you're not going to get any argument from me on that. Um, and in fact, it sort of raises the question then of well, why did we if if they're actually going to do all this, you know, why did we need the treaty? Um, uh, being that it's it's not uh, not enforceable, not not even monitorable. Um, uh, you know, if if they're going to do it just because they want to do it uh, to either be good environmental citizens or to gain a a public relations benefit or or to appeal to uh, a group of voters, um, well, okay. Uh, but uh, I mean, it, it almost argues against why do we need an international agreement if uh, we're all going to do it anyway, and we're not binding someone else to do it. So, so look, I mean, I I think that's you know, it, that's that's all it's all good and. Um, if, if liberals feel they're sort of sticking it to the Trump administration by doing that, uh, then, and, uh, you know, good for them. Um, but I'm, I'm still sticking with, with where I am that it's, it's not going to make that much of a difference at the end of the day, uh, simply because I, I don't think you're going to see compliance from these, these other signatories. So, okay. My thoughts on that are, 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 Somewhat different from yours, as you might expect. But before that, I want to thank our first sponsor for today's show, SeatGeek. You know, buying tickets to live events can be a pain. It doesn't have to be because SeatGeek gives you a smart and simple way to get tickets to concerts, sporting events, pretty much any live event you can think of. And with SeatGeek, you can find the best seats at the best prices. It's fully guaranteed, and it only takes a few taps, or if you're using it from a from a computer, you're an old person like me, a few clicks. Um, I've got the SeatGeek app. I've got SeatGeek on my bookmarked on my PC and my Mac, and just just yesterday, in fact. I decided I'd do an experiment, see how long it would take to go from actually opening the site to buying my tickets under 30 seconds. I mean, that's quick and easy. And the prices I got, great prices. So definitely, I highly recommend SeatGeek. And it's not just buying tickets. 
you can track and get updates on, let's say there's a specific venue you like to go to, you want to know what's going on there, SeatGeek will do that for you, uh, or specific performers, they'll notify you when they come to town. So it's really, there's a lot going on here. You can even connect with Spotify, your music library, Facebook to get notifications about the artists that you listen to or follow to. Uh, even when you buy a ticket, they'll even put the day and time of that event where you buy the ticket for on your calendar if you want. And if you don't want, they won't do that. So best of all, Politics Guys listeners, you get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app, enter promo code POLITICSGUY, no S, just POLITICSGUY, and you get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Again, that's SeatGeek app, or you can go to SeatGeek.com if you're an old person like me and get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Okay, so my response to this, Jay, you know, and I really think that, that you know, certainly this is kind of a conservative sort of thing in a way, right? Because it's, yeah. it's businesses, it's federalism, it's states saying, hey, we're going to go our own way on this. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about federalism in the context of specifically California in a minute here. So in a way, these are very conservative principles and true economic conservatives should embrace this sort of thing. And, and you do certainly. In I just did. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Um, I guess where I would take issue with you is that your comment about, well, why do we need the federal government if these you know, if these private entities, if these, uh, if these subnational governments are going to do this, well, I would say that we need well, the f- less. So why do we need the federal government? Why do we need an international agreement? Why sure. do we need the federal government to sign an international agreement? Well, I would say we don't necessarily, I guess, technically I would say we do not need the federal government to sign an international agreement, but what we do need is the federal government to act in some way, uh, because Acting alone, while states and businesses can do, you know, quite a lot, actually. Uh, like, for instance, you might say, well, what, what can states do? Well, state, many states, I think it's like 29 states at this point, have targets about how much of their electricity has to come from renewable or, or alternative energy sources. So that's one thing. Uh, cities can alter their building codes to increase energy efficiency, and a number of cities are doing things like that as well. So. And while that's great, businesses do kind of the same things, but you can only get so far with that. And the federal government can do things like, well, what President Obama tried to do with the clean power plan, with fuel economy standards, fuel efficiency standards for vehicles, those things can make a huge, huge difference. And you take that chunk of it out and it makes it so much harder for us to get to the point where we need to get you know, where, where essentially we want to get to a point where we don't, we don't bake in enough uh, global warming into the system where we, we get to the point where there's no turning back potentially. And so that's why we certainly need businesses and we need states to do this, but it's not going to be enough alone. And the, the idea of, you know, we don't technically need an international treaty, sure, but that kind of helps because we all need to work together on this. It's not a national problem. It's an international problem. And we all need to do our part so that 50 years from now, we don't have, again, a total catastrophe. So, all right. So, I mean, really, I think you kind of made my argument. Again, look, I mean, to, to be clear, I'm I'm not for global warming. Um, of course I'm not. not for destroying the earth. Sure. Uh, <laughs> despite what some listeners may think. Uh, I, I am not pro pollution. Um, but the way I look at this is, is let's be realistic. And I, look, you made a point of, of the federal government ought to do something and, and okay, we can, uh, uh, now again, that's, that should be a debate that is, is handled within the halls of Congress, uh, where we debate the potential, uh, benefit that, that we can create for the, the global climate. Uh, and we balance that off against the costs that, that we're going to have to pay in terms of uh, lost productivity, more money, taxes, uh, so forth. Um, people, you know, really being put out of work. Uh, and, and that's, a, that's a calculus that, that needs to be made. And I would rather see it be made uh, here in our own country rather than taken on targets that we get from, from other countries. And to me, look, the, the point of an international agreement is – um, we'll do something. And if we do it, we can count on you to do it. 
And, and I just, I just don't, that's not going to happen again. Everything is, is targets and it, it may or may not take place and it's, it's not enforceable. There's not even a way to monitor it. And if you look at, for example, um, you know, we recently talked about NATO and the NATO nations, which made a commitment to, uh, 2% of their, their GDP towards, uh, towards the cause. Um, well, we can't get those countries to do that. Uh, and those are countries who we, we are allies with and share a, a common, you know, history and, and work well with, and we're not international competitors with really. Um, and the, the idea that these bigger countries, China and India are actually going to, um, put in place, um, any kind of curbs on carbon, uh, I, I just think is unrealistic. Uh, and at the same time, we're expecting ours to do that. Now, look, like I said, if, if independent companies, industries, cities, Counties want to do it, uh, super. But uh, I, I'm hesitant to bind our country, or at least I mean, I, we would assume we would we intend to be bound, right? Well, Paris didn't um, bind us, right? I mean, you know, and it, you know, look, there's there's also the there's a, a constitutional issue of if we're going to have a treaty, it ought to be ratified, and this plainly wasn't. And um, I, that so look, I, I don't hate Paris, I don't hate the world. Uh, I, I just think this is really sort of a, a lot of, a lot of nothing. And yeah, I, I, I you know, I couldn't disagree I mean, more. And, and let me, let me explain why, you know, I think you're right in the sense that there are, a, there were a lot of problems with the Paris climate accord, certainly, you know, but that to me, that's the nature of policy, not just internationally, but nationally. It's a, it's supposed to be, and if it works properly, it's an iterative process, meaning you start with something and you build on that. And in fact, built into the Paris Climate Accord is a mechanism for meeting every few years to work on improving and, and reevaluating and so forth. And and so this was the Paris Climate Accord. Well, well, hold on. Right? Well, well, let me let me finish here. The, the Paris Climate Accord was never intended, this this agreement was never intended to be the final word, the be all and and, and end all. It was supposed to be a starting point. You're right. Yes, we can still go to the meetings, but not when we're out of it. So, I mean, why pull out of this when we have an opportunity to shape this? If Donald Trump truly wanted to work to make this a better agreement, then the way you do that is by staying in and using the process that was designed to make it a better agreement. You don't get out of it entirely and then just kind of carp from the sidelines. That's that's exactly the wrong approach to take. And that's why I think it was a really bad choice by the president. All right. But I again, I, I think we're really we're really sort of making the same point. I think we just come down on, on different different place on the calculus. I mean, you would agree with me that this doesn't make and again to to our, our Mary Lister's points that uh, I mean we're you know go to global cataclysms right around the corner um, this isn't going to change that uh, what you like about it is it provides a process and it keeps us inside the tent and we still have that engagement and that there is a a something worthwhile in in that engagement um, I agree I think there's something worthwhile in that engagement uh, but I think the the economic cost to us, uh, as it stands now, uh, for us to honor it, where we don't really expect others to honor it, uh, outweighs the value of that that continued engagement. Because I think we can be continually engaged, regardless, regardless of whether we're in, we're out. They're still going to talk to us, um, and 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 we may have even more leverage. Uh, in this case, being outside uh, than we would inside. And and look, that's a difference of opinion. But I think. I think you and I, as far as the the final piece of of look, will this save the earth? Uh, I don't know if I'm hearing you right. I think we're on the same same page that will look probably not. It's 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 maybe a piece of that, but well, sure. To me, though, it's like saying that well, you know, uh, running around the block won't will make you, that's not running a marathon, but to, you have to start somewhere, essentially. And I so so to me, this is the start of this process that might make it somewhat less likely that not right around the corner, but that 30, 40, 50 years from now, we're dealing with a, a catastrophe uh, of, of unimaginable proportions. And, and so I don't or may, think, or, or maybe not, or maybe not, but I think that the, 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 the magnitude of the potential disaster is so great 
that we need to we need to be very cautious and we need to be very careful about this. And I believe, and this is where I think you and I differ, I believe that many people are weighing the costs and benefits incorrectly in this. And in part, I get why, because it's hard to see. It's hard okay. to no, put I mean, that, yourself. That's fair. That's a fair. That's a fair point. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to put yourself 30, 40, 50 years in the future. So I don't think, I know you don't hate the planet and want to see it destroyed. Of course not. You know, and most people, I there are some weird people who maybe feel that way, but, but I just think it's a question of people, just human beings having a very difficult time trying to picture some future state decades from now uh, in, in trying to calculate costs and benefits. We, you know, there's plenty of psychology the experiments that would show that we're horrible at predicting future states of things. And I think that's what's going on here. And I only hope that this won't lead to, uh, you know, the not destruction of the planet, but certainly some pretty awful outcomes that could just be horrific, essentially. So, you know, before we get to some related news on this, we also want to. Can I just make one one? We talked about this yeah, years yeah. ago. Uh, a plug for uh, Bjorn Lomberg's uh, book, uh, Cool It, um, for any of those uh, folks who are, are really getting worried about about this. You'll feel better, or maybe not, or maybe you'll you'll feel more angry. But uh, you know, Lomberg points out, sort of takes my position that, yeah, he believes global warming is real. It's going to cause problems. Uh, but the way he looks at it are that the uh, the cost of the the cure that we're talking about now exceeds uh, the benefit we get uh, down the road, and there's better ways to to go about it. But we'll go on. Okay, yeah. But before we get to the second story, I just want to thank our second sponsor for today's show, Dollar Shave Club. They deliver you an amazing smooth shave. You can get high quality blades and amazing shave butter delivered right to your door for an incredible smooth shave. And you know, with Father's Day, it's right around the corner. What better gift is there to give than a membership to Dollar Shave Club? And, you know, I've said it before. I went away from razors because I hated the high cost and the inconvenience of constantly having to go to the store and get replacement cartridges. Well, not constantly, but it was still a pain, right? And those, those, those cheap old disposable razors, that didn't turn out well for me at all. Dollar Shave Club solved all of those problems for me. And I know, Jay, you're a fan of Dollar Shave Club too, right? Big fan, big fan. Uh, it, it is really, and I'll, I'll say this, I've said that before, uh, best shave uh, ever had, closest shave, most comfortable, uh, and most economical. Yeah, I mean, so there you go, close, comfortable, economical, what else would you want, really? I mean, and for a limited time, new members get their first month of the Executive Razor with a tube of their Dr. Carver Shave Butter for only $5 with free shipping. And after that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only five bucks. In your first first month, I can talk, your first month's box, you get a weighty handle, a full cassette of four executive cartridges, and a tube of shave butter. Now, you can only get this offer now by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. Okay, you know, moving on to our kind of related story, uh, California Governor Jerry Brown visited China last week, and he was treated almost like a head of state, really. Uh, now, well, as, as you'd expect. Yeah. Well, okay. You know, put this in perspective. California, over 39 million people. It's by far the most populous of the states. It accounts for around 12% of the total U.S. population and over 14% of U.S. GDP. And if it were its own country, its GDP of right around $2.5 trillion dollars, it would make it the sixth largest in the world, just behind the UK and slightly ahead of France. And because of that size and those huge Democratic majorities in the state, California has been able to pass state environmental policies that have really led the way in the U.S. and made, I would argue, a not insignificant difference. So uh, what, what do you think, Jay, about what California, what Jerry Brown are you know, kind of doing to sort of take the lead on this issue in you know, uh, given the fact that the president doesn't seem interested. Um, look, again, I'm, I'm all for states doing what they can and, and exercising uh, federalism and having that um, uh, laboratory, those laboratories of democracy. Um, what, uh, you know, California's, the, the, the unfortunate part is, and or you can say fortunate, depending on how you look at it, uh, is that, California does sort of set the standard uh, because it's such a big market for uh, a product sold throughout the United States. Um, so, 
you know, it's 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 primacy, it's it's uh, a big uh, market power uh, lets it uh, uh, play sort of a different level. Um, you know, look, I, I would I may argue on the uh, uh, the margins of this thing. Um, you know, should they do it? Can they do it? Yeah, okay. Or what they doing? Uh, good for everyone in the country, or is it unnecessarily stifling industry? I'd, I'd probably say the latter. Um, but uh, you know, uh, again, from a federalism standpoint, you know, states states ought to be able to do it to do what they want in those things, unless and the difference would be if the if the federal government wants to intervene and occupy the field uh, on these questions, which it it uh, historically has not. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Because- or I shouldn't say historically is not, but. It you depends. know, again, it's a matter of it's it's a, you know, floor rather than a ceiling. Yeah. Uh, or a ceiling rather than a floor. Yeah. So. Well, you know, starting with the, the Nixon administration, going that goes back quite a ways, California's been given a waiver to uh, that allows it to set its own fuel economy standards that are higher than the, the federal government's requirements. And there are some people who are wondering if this waiver is something that might be pulled by uh, the Trump EPA. Certainly, Scott Pruitt is probably no big fan of that thing. And so that's something to, to look for to see if, you know, because that uh, again, fuel, fuel, uh, sorry, auto emissions, that's a huge contributor. And that would deal a real blow to California's effort if the uh, the EPA stopped granting that waiver, though it's still in effect now. And we'll definitely keep an eye on that. You know, and I would say, look, this is this is going to maybe sound strange coming from a, a conservative. But again, from the, the federalism sort of standpoint, uh, I get that. That makes sense. Look, California has uh, highly populated areas. They have big highways. They have people doing a lot of driving. They have a lot of cars. Um, so, so it, it, it would make sense that, that fuel economy is a bigger issue. Uh, emissions are a bigger issue, uh, to places like California than to say states like Nebraska. Uh, and that's sort of the beauty of, of federalism is if California wants to put tighter, uh, restrictions on its admissions, it can, uh, and folks in, uh, Nebraska, uh, do not have to, where, where conditions are significantly different. Uh, and the problems and the cost and benefits are significantly different, uh, don't have to uh, to undertake those same regulations. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. Uh, for for older folks or people who uh, want to look back people historically. People remember federalism. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, no, I mean, you, you take a look at some pictures of, for instance, like Los Angeles in the, in the 60s and the 70s, the smog issues that they had were just horrific. These are the same sort of issues that China is dealing with now. And so you can understand why they might want to uh, talk a little bit about their their solutions. California does a, a cap and trade sort of thing. China's moving to that. And again, like you said, there are there are really good reasons why this is a serious problem in, in California and some of the huge cities in China as well. So, uh, so yeah, of course, I'm in favor of this. I'd like to see this as a model for the country as a whole. But uh, I say, go, Jerry Brown, go. Okay. Moving on to some of the listener comments we received. Like I said, there were a bunch. I just pulled out a few that I thought were representative. Um, first is Pat- sucks. <laughs> there were a few like that. Yeah. Um, sort of representative. Oh, exactly. Uh, first is Pascal who writes, I was thoroughly disappointed by your discussion about the Paris Accord. How can you tackle this topic without bringing up climate change even once is beyond me. And I'm deliberately ignoring Jay's ridiculous closing satirical comment about it. Not a word about scientific consensus, the international outcry from world leaders, NGOs, and, hello, people. You failed to mention that even within the U.S., the Paris Accord is anything but partisan. According to the Washington Post, just 28% support the move, 59% oppose it. Focusing on economics as a straw man for the entire discussion was intellectually insulting to me. I appreciate what you're trying to do with this podcast, but this was entirely counter to your self-set goals. I wish you all the best for the future, and I'm sad to unsubscribe, but this has clearly shown that I have to find a different source to get a balanced view on the current political issues. So, Shay, well, I, I, sorry to see you go. I, I, I guess if you're here, here yeah. if you uh, if you need to find a different source to get balance because you you disagree with what, what you're hearing, I mean, you know, that sort of sort of says it all to me. But uh, well, you know, in, in you know, a way. Mike, you, in a way, I think this was maybe even more directed at me because I would expect, I would be, I would assume, be the one who folks. Be really 
expected more of you, Mike. Well, you know, to, <laughs> to, to present more of the case, essentially. And, you know, so it's true that we didn't talk about the scientific consensus on that. And, you know, maybe I should have brought that up. And I definitely didn't focus as much on the seriousness of the threat. And maybe I downplayed that too much. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why when, when a number of folks said, hey, you know, you should take a look at the science behind this a little more carefully and consider how significant the threat is. I I, I take those I take those comments seriously. I consider them. And that's why, as I mentioned on the Sunday show, I'm reading The Sixth Extinction. I'm going to be reading a lot more about this. I'm going to be talking to trying to bring on a, a climate change expert. I think I'm, I, I'm going to talk to try to talk to uh, James Hansen, uh, maybe Bill McKibben. I'm going to try to get them on. So so, you know, I, I appreciate that kind of commentary. and I'm going to try to do a better job on my part of that. So you feel that you do get uh, that, that sort that sort of balance that of course you wouldn't get from Jay who doesn't hate the planet, by the <laughs> way, you know, but who just sees things in a fundamentally different way. So there you go. Let me just, let's say that from, from my standpoint, uh, again, I'm, I went at this from the Paris Accord as a accepting all the scientific predictions and all the, the, the predictions upon which it was based as true. Uh, I, I still think getting out was, was okay. And, you know, this is kind of funny because this is probably the third week we talked about it. And the first week, uh, I think my response was, well, get in, uh, get out. It's not going to make much of a difference at the end of the day. Uh, and that's, that's really still where I am. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not, we, we can have an argument about, uh, the science, but that, that's not my point is look, if, even if you accept all the science, uh, that, that goes into the, the Paris Accord, my concern isn't so much with uh, whether or not uh, my, my my concern is what what's being proposed uh, isn't going to work because it's it's not enforceable. There's no mechanism for it, uh, and and you know countries are going to behave in their own self interest, uh, perceived self interest, regardless of of international agreements. And so yeah, if you want to say I'm I'm taking an economic uh, view of it, uh, I, I suppose I am. Um, but in the bigger picture, that's, that's what this is all about. Uh, this is about, um, you know, making choices between potential detriments in the future, uh, and, and, uh, current, uh, detriments restrictions now. Yep. Um, well, well, and so I, I see your point and I, I don't think, I certainly think that one can look at this through an economic lens. And we tend to look at, especially people who are kind of policy wonky, like, like you and I tend to focus on things primarily through an economic lens for a lot of reasons, in part because it's, it's kind of measurable metrics, right? And that, that makes sense. But I think there are also other ways to look at this. And I think this is where some of the really impassioned responses come. People who say, well, yes, there's the economics, but there's also a moral kind of ethical way to look at this is what are we doing to the planet are, you know, we are destroying you know, many, many species. Uh, we are creating potentially an environment for uh, future generations where, you know, we're not paying the cost, but we're putting those costs on the, not just economic costs, but in terms of, of health and being able to enjoy, uh, uh nature and so forth. And just, just the destruction of a lot of species and so forth. And so that's much more of a moral argument, just like, for instance, you could talk about uh, reproductive rights and abortion in, in an economic framework, and so, a certain you know, economists do, but it's also a moral issue as well. And you know, I think it's absolutely fair to say that we didn't really talk about the ethical implications of this. Uh, it's not necessarily, I would say, our strong suit, our area of expertise, but I don't want to downplay those people who say, you know, this is, we have an obligation to the planet. We have, we have, a, we have a moral obligation to the planet, and we are, we are ignoring that for short-term economic gain. I, I certainly have a lot of sympathy for that argument. To a certain extent, I absolutely buy into that argument. I think that's, I think that's fair and true and just. So I would, I would say, look, and this is, if you want to ask me where I am on the, on the moral piece of it, I think absolutely we have an obligation, uh, to the planet and to future generations. Uh, I come down at a different place as to how that obligation is best fulfilled. Um, you know, we, when we're talking about, uh, uh, countries doing things or companies, uh, cities, businesses doing things voluntarily. Uh, fantastic. 
but I also think we are in a a, a better position. Uh, it is is more <laughs> morally correct to not uh, bankrupt um, uh, ourselves, sort of in the future. And, and again, my, I'm overstating it. Look, I mean. Uh, to the extent, the extent that conservatives say this is going to bankrupt the U.S. and 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 also it's not going to happen. To the extent that liberals say the world is going to end, I, I don't believe that's going to happen either. And again, I don't think the science says that's going to happen. Um, but uh, I think we are we are in a a better position uh, on all fronts uh, if if we're a more prosperous society. Uh, you're in a better position to deal with whatever uh, challenges come from climate change, be it man-made, be it be it otherwise, um, uh, than than uh, by making these sacrifices for what will be, even as the science itself self acknowledges, fairly minimal gains a uh, hundred years from now. Providing everybody actually does what they say they're going to do, which they won't. Here, here's kind of how I see it. I'll use a, a, a kind of try to put it in, in different terms. You know, I think how, how you and I, I differ on this is uh, we both see, we both acknowledge that climate change is a real thing and that it's being driven in, you know, a certain extent, you and I might disagree on this, but it's being driven in part, certainly by human activity. And yes. so the yeah. question we, is- I think we can absolutely agree on that. Great. So, you know, we are not, you know, some people suggested you were a climate change denier and, you know, that's just, that's not the case. So, but I kind of see us as kind of hurtling down this hill, picking up speed and sort of my position. And I think a lot of folks on the left is saying, well, we need to start putting on the brakes right now because this is just going to accelerate. And that's one thing we know scientifically about climate change is, you know, already what's happened in terms of our emissions to this point, that has effects that are baked in 20, 30 years into the future. We can't do anything about that sort of thing. So, well, well, no, again, that, we, well we differ on the, the, the science on that, I think. And that, you know, again, just to, to, to my point, if you look back at the predictions that were made 20, well, yeah, 30 yeah. years ago, but, but let's not, uh, sure. they've but, been wrong. So, but, but I mean, you're saying, but, so yeah, but our level of confidence in predictions 20 to 30 sure. years in the future we ought to we ought to take with a similar grain of well, salt. Well, let, let's back off of that though. But you you acknowledge that the basic science, regardless of the numbers, that the basic yeah. science says that the things that we put into the atmosphere now have long term effects. Okay, okay. So that's what I'm saying. So we're kind of hurtling down this hill, and our you know on the left, myself and my friends on the left are saying we need to put the brakes on now because we keep on gaining speed and we're going to get to the point where we're gaining so much speed that we can't stop it anymore. We're going to reach a point of no return. And what I hear you and some, you know, decent people on the right saying is, yeah, that's true. But if we grow the economy enough, we're going to develop much better braking technology that actually is going to be more effective at a lower cost. And I think that's where that's exactly it. Yes. I was going to say, we will, let's take the money now and get a better car with better brakes. Exactly. And so I think that's, that's the distinction. And I, my, my response to that is I'm just uncomfortable about putting that much faith into future braking technology and you're more comfortable with it essentially. So it's not that, it's not that you don't believe climate change is not a real thing and could be a huge issue. Uh, in you know generations to come, but you have much more faith in technological progress than than maybe I do, essentially. Okay, okay, and you know there was another point, uh, and a number of folks brought this up as well, saying that well, isn't Jay just being an apologist for President Trump, who's a climate change denier? And and I'll, I'll I know Jay, you're you're uncomfortable kind of responding to that, and I get why, but I know that that's not what you're saying, you know, that's just, that that's not, not the case at all. I, you're certainly not a fan of president Trump. You occasionally somewhat fall into coincidental alignment with him on certain things, but for very different reasons, you pretty much, when you agree with Trump's decision, it's you're issuing a concurring opinion and you're not joining the majority opinion on that for the most part. So, yeah, no, I, I mean, to the extent, uh, am I an apologist for Trump? I, I doubt it. My, my role on this, I think is to, uh, put out the general conservative as I see it, uh, position on, on certain issues. 
uh, and and the conservative position on on a lot of climate change issues has been to the extent. And again, I'm I'm not a denier. Uh, uh, I am, I would say, a skeptic uh, on especially on the the ability to to, to make make these changes and the difference they're going to make. Um, but but conservatives have typically uh, been more in favor of. Uh, you know, their own, you know, bilateral nationalist uh, sort of approaches to things rather than joining in on uh, uh, big internationalist projects. Um, and and uh, so, so yeah. <laughs> and again, it's it's also sort of a, a funny thing that, you know, again, when we, we started, we first raised this issue a couple weeks ago, my, my position was sort of ambivalent and again, still is, I mean, get out, stay in. It probably doesn't change much. I think marginally it's better to, to, to be out. Um, uh, but the, the, the English uh, philosopher Bertrand Russell, uh, once said that, look, if you're, if your reaction, uh, to, to someone's position, uh, if your first reaction is, is anger, uh, is emotion, uh, then perhaps you're not getting there from from an intellectual place, and, and I really think there are there are people out there, and and they certainly mean well, and I I, I get it. Um, you know, I you'd be surprised. Uh, you know, I, I I love nature a whole lot, uh, uh, and uh, um, I very much uh, care about uh, our, our the how how things are are, are proceeding, and. Uh, um, uh, so, so I, I mean, I, I'm again. I'm just trying to say I, I don't come from a place of I'm, I'm here to de- defend Donald Trump, um, but I, I think my role is, is to point out there's a different way of looking at things, uh, and, and sometimes that comes down to economic cost benefits, and, and, and I think sometimes the, 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 the more moral uh, choice is to, to support the, the, the choice that's going to better equip you to deal with uh, issues in the future. Sure. You know, and that that's why, I mean, I, I agree with you on that. We can, you know, I, both of us are, I know, and this is, you know, in part of, of uh, because we, you know, we've been friends for, for many decades now, you are arguing from a position of good faith um, and are a fundamentally decent person. And I know you believe the same thing with me. Yeah. You know, and, <laughs> but so that's why I think while I, I certainly respect that uh, Pascal's views and I know a number of other people feel this way. I don't think that our, our, our discussion was counter to our self-set goals. Uh, uh, not at all. And we can disagree about these things without, you know, without uh, uh, accusing the other person of being uh, fundamentally evil or uncaring or something like that. And I think that's part of the problem with so much political debate on these sort of issues. This is one of these issues, certainly, uh, like I said, reproductive rights, abortion is another one where it's so hard because people feel so passionately because they feel the stakes are so high. And yet there are decent people on both sides who just you know, kind of see the costs and benefits both economically and in other terms and, you know, the responsibilities and so forth in a different way, but that doesn't make them bad or evil people. And I think to the extent that we categorize them that way, it makes it even harder for us to come together and try to do something about these things. So, all right, one more bit of listener mail, uh, Tyler from Salt Lake City, Utah, who writes, good show on Sunday, as always. Conservatives, especially the ostensibly libertarian-leaning variety, give great deference to markets and economics to fix pretty much any problem, but fail to ever factor in how pollution has real costs that aren't being accounted into market prices. Pollution in economic terms is what, what they call an market externality, which is just a fancy way of saying it shifts costs to others not necessarily responsible. We see this in health outcomes for poor areas of the country. Sea level rise and ocean acidification are other examples of problems that will affect countries who had very little participation in the cause, for example, Bangladesh. So if in general, conservatives oppose regulation as a means to shift the costs of pollution back onto the producers, why are they also opposed to market solutions like a carbon tax? Jay, what do you think? Well, let's let's uh, <clears throat> think about that. Um, I guess the the biggest point is I, I don't know that a carbon tax. Um, h- how does that how does that sh- really shift the the cost or how does that benefit those who might be the the people in Bangladesh, for example? Um, 
and again, there's there's some assumptions that are they're baked in there, but let's let's you know assume them for the the, the sake of argument. Um, I I think that there are market extra. I don't know. You know, look, I, I'm I'm not sure I entirely understand the question. I guess is why shouldn't we have a carbon tax? Because that would be more fair to uh, you know, island countries or, or Bangladesh. Well, pull, um, pull back from that. Okay. Let's, let's, let's simplify the question a little bit. I think at the heart of Tyler's question, at least as I understand it is he's arguing that there is a cost associated with pollution, not just to the Bangladesh, but to the, to future generations. In other words, so we are imposing a cost on future generations. And I think proponents of a carbon tax or proponents of something similar, uh, a cap and trade system, which for instance, used to be something that Republicans actually advocated for John McCain, the 2008, the nominee was, uh, was a supporter of something like this. So it's not like this was never a Republican position. It just hasn't been lately. And the argument was exactly that, that we need to essentially properly price the cost of carbon. And you, the only way to do that is not just to price what it costs now, but what it's going to cost in the future in terms of environmental degradation, cleanup and other things like that. And to me, that's an eminently reasonable argument. And that's some, that's one of the things that I liked about John McCain and that kind of older Republican tradition where they wanted to consider things like that. Gotcha. All right. No, that, that makes more sense to me. I, I, but I would, I would say the difficulty is in pricing those future uh, detriments. Um, that's where we disagree. As again, as I pointed out earlier, so much of uh, the science of the predictions uh, that, that have been made have been wrong. Um, so when you're asking people now to make expenditures, to, to do things that will in, in real, in real life, uh, put coal miners out of work, uh, put, you know, that, that sort of thing. When you're asking them to do that based on a future, well, maybe this will happen, uh, in, in Bangladesh or, or somewhere else. That is a really tough sell politically. Uh, and, and I think, I think you know, to some extent we come back to as a, as a, you know, American nation state, uh, are our first interests to look after, uh, our country or is it to look after well, others? And well, this is going to sound horrible and mean, and then we're going to get well, all no, let, let's, let's mail let's, coming, coming back to me again. No, but, well, well, let's put Bangladesh aside. The nation states act in their own perceived best sure, interest. But let's put Bangladesh aside. Let's forget about that entire aspect of it. We both, it sounds to me, we both agree that pollution imposes costs on future generations of United States citizens, sure. right? Okay. So now what, maybe, maybe I misheard you, but it sounded like you, what you said is that because it's difficult for us to accurately calculate those costs, we shouldn't consider them at all. No, I'm not saying we shouldn't consider them at all, but the, the, should we do nothing? In other words, just, I mean, I, I understand the argument to say, well, let's, you know, there's reasonable people can differ on what these costs are and we can come up with a range of estimates and so forth. And maybe conservatives and liberals would differ on, well, liberals will probably want to go more toward the high end of that range. Sure. Conservatives, But the idea that since we can't, since there's not one definitive number, we should do nothing. To me, that doesn't track logically. Well, how about this? Uh, the other thing to consider is in terms of the what's being done and who should pay those costs. What about, uh, as we've mentioned before, the Chinese and the Indians who are, who are, who are the Chinese are certainly putting out, um, more than double the emissions. But again, let's not focus on them. Uh, let's just, we focus would say we would pay, we would pay the costs. Um, whereas they may or may not. Now I, I'm not, I'm not uh, opposed to, a, a you know, carbon tax or a cap and, uh, cap and spend, a, you know, in principle. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I just am talking specifically about I'm, cost I'm trying, of I'm future to, generations of why Americans. why it doesn't happen. Sure, okay, okay, fair enough, yeah. The politics is, is of because, it is... Is because the, 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 very, the, the very real costs that we would incur right now are very visible, yep. uh, uh, and the potential costs sure. are uh, hypothetical and they're way into the future. Sure, it's the exact same reason why so many Americans don't save enough for retirement. It's hard to take a hit now 
to ensure a prosperous future. It's just a difficult thing to do. And from a political standpoint, you're absolutely right. So I just wanted to be clear. You're talking about the politics of it, but in terms of the, the logic of it, you're not rejecting the logic of it. You're just saying politically it's difficult to do. Right. Difficult, if, if not to some extent uh, impossible. And, and again, maybe there's a way to, to navigate this through and there's, there's a, a compromise to be found where you say, listen, um, you know, we understand that we may be sacrificing thousands, hundreds of thousands uh, of jobs and that income uh, and productivity right now. Uh, and if if you can get the the populace to go along with that, then then okay, that's the way the system works. Um, but I, I I think so often liberals discount uh, the real impact of uh, of the policies right now. And you know, again, if you want to know what's what's the damage of that, well, uh, Donald Trump won Pennsylvania. Um, you know, Donald Trump won West Virginia. Those, those are the, the, the impacts I think that, that you see now of, of you've got people who are really legitimately worried, uh, about, uh, keeping their jobs, putting food on the table, sending their kids to school. Uh, and, and what, what, you know, I think what bugs a lot of, you know, conservatives is that those claim, those concerns are very much discounted. It's like, oh, come on, just, just quit mining coal. Uh, and and do find something better to do, um, but it, it can't happen just like that. And and I think uh, um, you know we we ought to consider those those costs as not insignificant. So sure, then and those are those are very real costs. You know, absolutely. Um, you know, one final point I want to make on this is you uh, a couple of times have referenced the the science having been. Uh, the predictions having been wrong and so forth. And and certainly I, I wanted to kind of not really push back a, a ton, but push back a little bit on that. I think there's this narrative on the right that uh, scientists are just these, these crazy liberals who make, who've made these wild predictions, none of which have come true. I think what's going on here is a lot more nuanced than that. I think there are two things going on here. Number one, the climate, the global climate is an incredibly complex system and our models have been imperfect. They improve over time, but you know, they certainly 10, 20 years ago, they weren't nearly as good tell, as they are now. <laughs> well, hold on. Let me, but secondly, I think a lot of what happens is when you read the actual reports, the scientists, the, the reports give you a range of things and what the media does and what the scientists we hear from the most, who tend to be the most kind of uh, media friendly folks are the folks who push the envelope of the most catastrophic things. And that's just a common a thing. Amen. I couldn't so, agree with you but, more on that. But yes. I think, you know, it's not so much that the science has been wrong. It's that been everyone has been focusing on the most, you know, the, the, the most worst case scenario type of things, essentially. And so when the worst case, I mean, because it's not the worst case scenario that's the most likely, there are most likely scenarios and there are things at the outer bounds, but what the media is going to report on is this outer bound thing. And if you take a look at the kind of most likely scenario thing, those are a lot closer into what's actually been happening than those way outlier kind of predictions. And I think so part of it's just a communication issue. People communicate those most radical possibilities as being the, obviously the most sensationalistic and, but they're less likely to happen than the still severe, but not quite as headline grabbing type of things. Yeah. My, my example would be, and I, I think you're exactly right. The, the scientific papers, again, there's lots of wiggle room. There's margins of error. There's the, here's, this is most likely to happen. Here's, this is, there's this percentage chance that this could happen. Um, our, our, our tend to be much more moderate just by the, the nature of, of science, scientific inquiry. And this is how we sort of, uh, you know, set out what our potential conclusions are going to be. And we have all the, the caveats and, you know, but this might not be if this happens and so forth. Uh, but what I, I, I'm two more is when uh, politicians or the media pick up those reports and, and make sort of wild pronouncements that the world is going to end soon is look, Al Gore did Academy Award uh, winner Al Gore uh, did in, in 2006, we predicted 75% of our Ar Arctic ice pack uh, would be gone uh, by last year. Um, it's not, it, it's, <laughs> you know, it, it's fine. And there are these, there are these, these statements that, uh, 
again, are just absolutely nonsensical. And then if anyone challenges them and says, hey, wait a minute, come on, that's that that's not right. It's like you're denying science. And uh, no, I mean, what could be more scientific than looking at here's what was predicted, here's what actually happened. Um, and this is I'm just going to throw out one one more example of this. And this is something that concerns me. Um, sort of personally is, is as you know, Mike, like most uh, rich, uh, conservative, uh, big shots, uh, I, I enjoy yachting and, uh, I, I have, uh, you know, a boat down on, in, uh, Lake Erie and I had been concerned years and years ago because the global warming models, uh, the predictions kept being that there would be, uh, sea level rises, um, uh, on the, on the coast and so forth, but actually the great lakes would be depleted and there were supposed to be significant droppage. Uh, in in uh, water levels of the Great Lakes, um, as as we stand here today, Lake Erie is at a, like almost a record high water level, um, and you know it's it's one of these things. This is something that actually worried me years ago. I'm like, oh geez, this is gonna gonna suck. I'm gonna be running aground. I'm, I mean, is the the harbor gonna be deep enough? And um, it's it it hasn't. Again, this was a prediction that didn't come true. And I suppose I'm cherry picking on that, but but. It's it's something that it is a personal observation to me um, that it it just isn't so and so I would I would caution so many of the folks who who get really worked up about this to sort of step back and consider uh, you know maybe the predictions that they're hearing are these wild worst case scenarios and and not actually what is likely to happen. Right, but by the same token, you're not saying that since the worst case scenarios haven't occurred that we should just dismiss the science as a bunch the scientists as a bunch of liberal activists who are that, that, that are conducting fake science no but we should we uh, but nor should we be uh, uh, afraid to push back and question and say look uh, this was predicted this didn't happen why not yeah what's wrong with this model I think, and, and, and certainly, and, and sort of say, look, we ought not to maybe use this model to the extent it's been proven incorrect to make future predictions, or at least. And we, as you pointed, it, it's sort of tough. I mean, like Yogi Berra said, predictions, you know, are always tough, especially when they involve the future. Um, it's tough to know until your model's working, until you've had it, sure. you know, running for a good 20, 30 years. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, once again, I think you and I, you know, will probably not entirely please a lot of people on the, the further left and further right uh, of us on this because we, we, we tend to believe that there is some sort of reasonable middle ground and that both sides can be guilty of maybe uh, uh, emphasizing incorrect or overemphasizing certain parts of the science for their own partisan ends. And of course, you and I are certainly above all that sort of thing. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, that's it for this special climate change politics and policy episode of The Politics Guys. And uh, today we'd like to thank again our two sponsors. The first is SeatGeek, the fast and easy way to get seats for live performances. Download their app and use our code POLITICSGUY, that's no S, and get $20 off your first purchase at SeatGeek. And also Dollar Shave Club, the smarter choice for a limited time. New members can get their first month of the Executive Razor 4 cartridges and a tube of their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for only 5 bucks with free shipping. Great Father's Day present. You can only get this offer by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. We'll be back with a new show next Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.